hop on, buckle up, make sure your seatbelts are fastened, and let me take you uh, to a new place tonight called Dan. And our purpose in visiting these various places in Israel is to seek to derive from each a practical life lesson uh, that we could remember and apply and live by so that we would be different, better, so that we would live life larger. So uh, pay some attention and we will see what life principle we could derive from this most interesting place. Uh, it's known as Tel Dan, a Tel meaning mound or hill. Uh, it's an elevated area to the far north of Israel. In fact, it's so far north that from that place, uh, if you have been there, you can relate to what I'm about to say, you can stand in Tel Dan and you could look literally into Lebanon and you could look into Syria. It's in the area of the Golan Heights, as far north as you can get in Israel before having to cross into other countries. In fact, it was the northernmost extent of ancient Israel, Beersheba being the southernmost extent. And hence, you see the oft-repeated biblical expression, from Dan to Beersheba. So that was the northernmost extremity and the southernmost extremity of the land, from Dan to Beersheba. This is a most interesting place. It's one of the four sources of the Jordan River, and hence you're seeing uh, before you some, some beautiful bodies of water. Uh, one is called the Spring of Dan. It's quite remarkable. It's the kind of thing you think you would see in a place as beautiful as Colorado, but here we are, uh, as I say, far north in Israel, and there's lots of water. It's quite fertile, quite agricultural, and lots of water up there. It was an ancient Canaanite city. And what made it so interesting is that it was fortified by man-made ramparts, walls, earthenworks, which surrounded the city and which provide, even down to this very day, perhaps the best example of that kind of uh, ancient defensive fortification. Archaeologists, curious as they are, cut into a section of the rampart, the wall around Dan some years ago so as to see what they could find out about how it was engineered, how it was constructed. And they found out to their surprise that these walls were built around a solid a rock core, natural rock. And what they did was to take crushed stone and uh, soil and... Uh, pottery fragments, the remains of prior civilizations, and they moved it all together on both the exterior of this solid rock core and the interior, and they were able to build it up in some places 60 feet high, and archaeologists have determined at the base, the rampart uh, extended 175 feet. So this was quite, an, well, an almost impregnable uh, defensive structure. To make it even harder to scale, they took crushed travertine and made a kind of a plaster substance. Some of it still remains today. They could find this uh, fragments of the plaster in the crevices of these major stones that make up the rampart. And they took it 
uh, spreading plaster on the exterior of the wall so that uh, invaders would slip and slide in their attempt to scale these 60-foot walls. So it was almost, not quite as you'll see, almost impregnable. Uh, Archaeologists also discovered a main city gate and outside of it a kind of a bench in a recessed area which helped us to understand again the oft-repeated biblical expression that says the men of the city sat in the gates. This is hard for us to relate to what do you mean sat in the gates because we don't think of gates in the same way they were in this day. They were major entranceways into fortified cities, actually a series of alcoves. And as you made your way through this massive city gate, on either side there would be benches, and that's where uh, the leaders of a particular locale would discuss stuff, sports, uh, stocks, local government. Uh, they, would, um, they would do what what we do today when we get together. And that's where they would make decisions, uh, oftentimes affecting the entire municipality. So there is a very, very accurate representation of this ancient gate uh, there at Tel Dan. And if you have visited there, you, you kind of went through it and probably sat nearby because uh, it makes for a good uh, photo opportunity. Now, something else was found there, much more, to me, exciting than this ancient gate. It was one even more ancient, in fact. Uh, it's dated to about 4,000, it's about 4,000 years old. And this particular gate uh, was characterized by two towers, about 20 feet high, uh, to which was attached an archway, and it was all made of mud, mud brick construction. So this was about 4,000 years ago. And what's interesting about it is that if it's that old, and it seems to be, it dated from the time of Abraham. And so I remember uh, the first time I was there to see the mud gate, I was just uh, stunned by um, what probably happened there. When Abraham came into the land from Mesopotamia, he probably passed through these gates. And he undoubtedly was there, according to Genesis, I think, chapter 14. Remember when his wayward nephew Lot was taken captive by some uh, warring kings, Abraham being a faithful family man, gathered up some reinforcements and traveled all the way north, all the way up north to Dan, there to rescue his nephew Lot. So uh, I was fascinated by the realization that the very mud brick gate I'm standing before and looking at, and which you see displayed from time to time in the photos before you, is the one Abram passed through. Now, it's amazing to think that a mud brick gate, it's not steel reinforced or anything, it's just mud, would still be in existence today. How could it be explained? Well, it seems that the Canaanites, who were the original residents of the area, did not like the gate for who knows what reason, we don't know. And so they buried it. And in so doing, they inadvertently succeeded 
in preserving it for us down to this very day. The archaeologists were able to unearth it pretty much intact, although it is regularly in a state of disintegration today. So if you haven't seen it, hurry up and go over there and take a look at this magnificent mud brick gate. Now, the archaeologists found more than just that. You know what they found? They found a raised platform, which they are persuaded was used by a very evil king of Israel when he offered to Israel as a substitute uh, for the worship of the true God a golden calf. If you can imagine it, uh, this idol, this substitute for a living God was offered to God's covenant people uh, by her very own king. And this is recorded for us in 1 Kings. It says, so the king, his name is Jeroboam. That's the one we're talking about. The king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. See, Dan's in the north. Jerusalem, which was the designated worship center, was far south. So under the guise of being sensitive to the uh, hardship of their travels, he said, it's too hard for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods. A golden calf. Behold your gods, O Israel. Look what he said that brought you up from the land of Egypt. God is long-suffering, is he not? He's the deliverer. He graciously heard Israel's cry when she was in bondage. And now she allows herself to be persuaded by her own king that this fabrication, (laughs) this thing manufactured by mere man, Uh, is the answer to her deliverance and not the real deliverer. And so it says he set one up in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And so if you visit there today, you can see this raised platform and also the remains of a four-horned altar uh, and many other religious objects which Jeroboam and others used in order to worship idols there. Well, I want uh, uh, to consult with you a passage of Scripture that relates very precisely to the tribe of Dan and this place named Dan. And it's found in Judges chapter 18. So if you care to look on, we're going to read through most of it. And just let me comment along the way. might be more helpful to you if you looked along. Judges chapter 18. If you prefer, you could just... You could just listen. But if you'd like to look along, please find your place. Judges chapter 18. It's right after Judges 17. And that's about as much help as I could offer at present. I forgot where it is. I know it's in the Old Testament. So it's after Joshua, is it not? Joshua, Judges, and then after Judges comes Ruth, right? So get get yourself between Joshua and Ruth, and you'll find Judges chapter 18. Look what it says. In those days, there was no king of Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. 
They were in, Israel, in Egypt in bondage for 400 plus years. They're uh, mercifully liberated. They're led through 40 years of wilderness wanderings. They cross the Jordan River into this land of promise, which God said is yours now, take it. And he parceled up the land in accordance uh, with the needs of the 12 tribes. And yet this says... No, at this time the Danites were looking for a place to settle because they had not yet received their tribal allotment. Uh, let me tell you something, uh, they did. In fact, if you back up, you don't have to now, but if you back up to Joshua chapter 19 sometime at your leisure, you will find out that the tribe of Dan, along with the others, was given a very, very specific tribal allotment. In this case, it would be far south of this place called Dan and close to the Mediterranean Sea. What really happened, however, is that some members of the tribe of Dan, it numbered about 64,000 at the time, some members decided we don't have enough territory. There are 64,000 of us. Let's stretch out. Let's look for some space. Not only that, they said, not all, but some, they said, you know, we're faced with many challenges in this place that God has allotted to us. Thank you, God. We really appreciate it. But with all due respect, no thanks. You see, there's other people in the land. They're called Amorites, which is really the same thing as Canaanites for our purposes. And the Amorites forced them into the hill country so that they couldn't spread out along the level plains area along the Mediterranean coast. And so the Danites said, you know, we don't need this. This is just like a lot of aggravation. It's, you know, I wanna, let's, you know, there's other real estate. This is too tiny. And there's other people, and they're mean to us. Yeah, but, but everybody, every tribe had to, by faith, take possession of the land God gave them um, as a promise. God said, here is your land. So everyone faces challenges when you try to take possession of that which God has promised you. So it wasn't just the tribe of Dan. Every tribe was faced with adversaries in the land. But they decided, you know, it's just, it, this is just too tough. And I can understand, you know, if I was there, if you, I don't know, maybe I would have joined in with those who came to the conclusion that they needed to relocate. At any rate, they gave up the fight, is what they did. The Danites abandoned the territory given to them by God. And here's what happened. Verse 2. The sons of Dan sent from their family, they chose five men out of everybody, valiant men from these particular places. And the purpose was for these five to spy out the land, kind of go on a reconnaissance mission. You know, they're like real estate agents. Go find us some better real estate, you five guys. And so they said, go search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of a, of a guy named Micah. And they stayed there. And when they were near the home of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite. There was a priest, a Levitical priest, out of bounds. He's supposed to be serving at the tabernacle. Instead, for some reason... He's serving in the house of this guy named Micah. 
Levitical priests don't do that. But they recognized this guy. Why? Maybe they knew him from before or they recognized his, and I'm not kidding, southern accent. He was from Judea. They're up north at this point. And so he was probably saying stuff like, Shalom, y'all. And so they knew <laughs> this guy's from the south. And so they, they turned aside and they said to him, Hey, hey, who brought you here? Sure, how did you get up here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And he said to them, Thus and so has Micah done to me. And he has hired me. I became his priest. Come on. You don't get called by God to serve in a priestly function and then hire yourself out to serve some selfish guy's personal needs to be his, like, house priest? You just don't... This is not... It's not the way it works. They said to him... Look what they say, verse 5. Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. Do you find something ironic about this? They're asking a guy who's blatantly outside of God's will for God's will. And they're outside of God's will. He already said, this is your land. Face the challenges. I will be your supply. I will allow you to take possession of what I promised you. Step out in faith. They they blow it off. So then they travel up there and they find find this renegade priest who's so far from the center of God's will, you can hardly describe it. And that's the guy they... They're not saying, is this something God would have us do? They're saying, how successful will we be? They've already made up their mind to do something contrary to the will of God. And they find this guy who they want simply to tell them what they want to hear. And so he says to them, verse 6... Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. You know, it's easy to say that. So easy, in fact, that he did. He said, why should I be the bearer of bad news? I won't be popular if I tell them the truth that they're rebellious, that they're disobedient, that they're ungrateful, that because of appearances, they are relocating, going north, contrary to God's will. I don't want to tell them that. It's five guys. I'm just one. And I got kind of a good deal in Micah's house. I mean, it's just me. He pays me well. I got a good retirement. I don't want to jeopardize the whole deal. Sure. Go in peace. Shalom. Peace. Have a good time. God will surely prosper you. Do you think there's maybe a small possibility that he was telling them what they wanted to hear? You bet your bippy. That's what was happening over here. The whole thing is ironic. So, verse 7, the five men departed and came to, does your Bible say Laish or something like that? That's actually Dan. That's the Hebrew Old Testament name. Before it was called Dan... It was called Laish, which means lion, because there's a very strong possibility that there were lions in this area at the time. You don't think of uh, Israel being a place inhabited by lions, but they were at, at one day, mountain lions. And so it was called Laish. They came to Laish. They saw the people who were 
in it, living in security, after the manner of the Sidonians. Have you heard of Tyre and Sidon or Sidon? It's in present-day Lebanon. It's on the Mediterranean coast, about 30 miles west of this spot. And the spies observed they're living good, secure lives. They're quiet and secure because there's no ruler humiliating them. And they're far from the Sidonians. They don't have dealings with anyone. They were so isolated, so secure, they had no military allies to defend them. And so the spies are saying, this looks like it's land ready for the taking. And so verse 8, when they came back to their brothers at these places, their brothers said to them, what you, what's the deal? What did you see? What's your report? They said, get up. Let's go against them. We've seen the land. It's really good. And, and are you going to just sit there? And be still, don't delay, hurry up. Let's go possess the land. When you enter, they say, you're going to come to a secure people with a spacious land. For God has given it into your hand. A place where there is no lack of anything on the earth. And so from the family of the Danites, from Zorah and Eshtaol, 600 men, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. They go up and they camp in this particular place and they call it Mahane Dan, which means the camp of Dan. And it is west of a place called Kiriat Jarim. And they pass from there to the hill country of Ephraim. They come to the house of Micah again. So the five men who originally went to spy out the land of Laish say to their kinsmen, these 600 guys, you know uh, that in these houses there's, uh, there's a lot of good stuff. There's an ephod, a breastplate, you know, that the priest wore. There are uh, household idols. And there's even, there's a graven image and a molten image. And so they say, look how shrewd. They say, now therefore, consider what you should do. We're not telling you what to do, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. You might want to think about making it yours. And so they turned aside there and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah, and they asked him of his welfare. How's it going, Mr. Priest? And the 600 men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the sons of Dan, they stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who went to spy out the land, they went up, they entered there, they took the graven image, they took the ephod, the household idols, the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. They stole the priest's stuff. When these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molten image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They said to him, keep quiet. Be silent. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Be to us a father and a priest. Isn't it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? They're giving him a job promotion. You're just a priest to one guy. Is that a good deal? When you could be our priest. We got health insurance. We got dental. <laughs> Sell your soul for a better deal. Well, the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod, the household idols, the graven image, and he went among the people. And then they turned and departed. And look what they did, the 600 soldiers. They put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. You know why they did that? So that they could be the rear guard. 
Because they assumed pretty soon Micah and his neighbors are going to come to try to get back what was stolen from their house. So they're protecting their kids and their livestock. So when they had gone some uh, distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook. Sure enough, Micah and his neighbors went after the sons of Dan. And they cried to the sons of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you that you've assembled together? He said, what do you mean? You've taken my gods, which I made. It's really a bad day, isn't it? When someone can carry off your gods. That's just like a bad day for you. And so this is, oh, so you're carrying away my gods. You know, don't you think it's a great privilege to have a God who carries us? Then to possess gods others can carry away? Oh, my goodness. And so they said, what do you mean? What's the matter? You took all of this stuff and you're asking me what's going on? This is my stuff. Verse 25, the sons of Dan said to him, "Uh, hang in there. Don't let your voice be heard among us. Keep quiet is what they're saying. Or else fierce men will fall upon you. Who? We will fall upon you. You will lose your life and the lives will kill you. That's what they say. These are the covenant people of God. We'll kill you, they say. So the sons of Dan uh, said to him, keep quiet. And they go their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, what's he going to do? He turned and went back home. Verse 27, they took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him. And they came to Laish, to a people in Indeed, quiet and secure. They struck him with the edge of the sword and they burned the city with fire. They killed all these people. They took what was not theirs. God didn't ordain it. He didn't authorize it. And there was no one to deliver them, that is, the people of Laish, because it was far from everything else. It was far from Sidon. Uh, And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in a valley, which is near this place. There was no one around. And they, the Danites, rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they called the name of the city Dan. And so that's what it's called down to this very day. It was Laish, and they renamed it after they took it. They renamed it Dan after the name of Dan, their father who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly, it says, was Laish. And the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. They did this. In Dan, they set up the graven image, and Jonathan, now we know the name of the renegade Levitical priest. His name is Jonathan. Now get this. And Jonathan, who's his dad? A guy named Gershom. Jonathan is the son of Gershom. You know why that's significant? Moses had a son named Gershom. That would make Jonathan this renegade idolatrous priest the grandson of Moses. But the text doesn't say Moses, does it? It says, Jonathan, the son of Gershom. Does your Bible say the son of Manasseh? I don't want to rock your faith, but that's wrong. Oh, I got you there. Um, Here's what happened. If you consult a Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew, this is written in Hebrew. It'll say, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moshe, the son of Moses. 
You know what happened? A scribe sometime in ancient history to protect the reputation of the great rabbi, the lawgiver Moses, simply inserted a little Hebrew letter, an N, changing the name from Moses, Moshe, to Manasseh. Manasseh is one of the wicked kings of Israel. In an attempt to protect uh, the reputation of Moses and to try to sever a connection between Jonathan, the idolatrous Levitical priest, and his granddad, Moses, the well-intentioned copyist changed the name so that all this degradation would be associated not with Moses, but with Manasseh. Now, I know that perhaps shakes you up a little bit, but I think if you study it, you'll find out that what I just told you is true. And you know something? The copyist was correct, not necessarily to tamper with the text, but he was correct to conclude that this is a great source of shame in Israel. They ought to be ashamed, liberated graciously from bondage, chosen to be God's own possession, given the title deed to the land, and going after idols and idolatrous priests. It is a source of great shame. So here's what they did, verse 31. They set up for themselves Micah's graven image, the image they stole from his house. They set it up there in Dan, uh, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. Huh? Shiloh was 19 miles north of Jerusalem. Before a temple was constructed in Jerusalem, Shiloh was the divinely designated worship center. The tabernacle was there. It housed the Ark of the Covenant. God said, you will meet me at Shiloh. I will establish my presence at Shiloh. That's the place where you will assemble and call upon my name and I will hear you. That's the designated place to worship. That's the religious center of Israel. And what do the Danites do? They set up an alternative religious center to the far north in this place which used to be called Laish and which they now call Dan. So they established an alternative worship center, and this was blatantly wrong. So folks, what's a life lesson we could derive from this whole sordid episode at Dan? It's this. You and I can feel so right about something and yet be so wrong. We can be absolutely convinced in our own minds about the rightness of a course of action and yet be dead wrong. It made perfect sense to the Danites to move from the south to the north and to take this place by force. Good land, unopposed, lots of territory, no adversaries in the land, much more room than we were given by God down south. All the appearances suggested to them the rightness of this course of action. They saw Amorites in the land. They saw that the land constrained them. 
They saw a guy who said he was a Levitical priest. They heard his words of encouragement. They saw Laish, and that was a great expanse. Nobody militarily could oppose them. They saw all this. And it all seemed so right, this thing that they did. And yet all along it was so terribly, terribly wrong. They felt so right. But they were from the beginning to the end desperately, desperately wrong. And what happened is that their move outside the designated will of God made them historically terribly vulnerable because at any time an invading army came into the land to take possession of it, they came from the north. And so the tribe of Dan were the first to go, the first to experience an onslaught from Mesopotamian kings and Syrian kings and everybody else. They came from this very place. They essentially said to God, we know how better to take care of ourselves than you. We don't trust your good judgment. Don't you know there's Amorites down there? I mean, you gave us that real estate, but we're just going to have to fight to take it. We're going to go up here because we can secure our own peace. No, they never had it. They were continual under pressure of invaders from the north. And not only that, the tribe of Dan fast became the most idolatrous tribe in all of Israel. In fact, their city became a national center of idolatry. Now, and then more particularly under Jeroboam with the golden calf. Are you familiar with this verse of scripture? There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's the life lesson to derive from our somewhat uncomfortable visit to this place called uh, the city or the tell of Dan. We have this human inclination, this proclivity, to make decisions on the basis of what our senses tell us to be true. It looks good. It sounds good. It sounds good. There was a school teacher, a dear lady whose husband passed away. She was a widow on limited income, but they stored up quite an accumulation of life savings with which uh, uh, she was going to live. But a swindler came her way at a time when she was most vulnerable and proposed to her a really elaborate kind of a business plan. She couldn't understand it, and it was fraudulent. She invested the sum total of the entirety of her life savings And he ran off with it. She lost everything. Her dreams and aspirations were absolutely shattered. Then, looking for some recourse, she contacted the Better Business Bureau and reported this, mentioned the name of the guy, and the representative there said, "Why, Why didn't you contact us before this transaction? Did you not know of us? And she said, oh, no, I know of the Better better Business Bureau. I've known of you all for years and years. Well, why didn't you come, he said. And she said, "Ah, I was afraid you might talk me out of it. (laughs) So my fellow people of the New Covenant, 
um, we, we know where the answer to our lives lies. We know what the source of guidance and direction is. It's God's Word. And yet there's something in us that at times keeps us from consulting it and submitting to it as well. Lest it tell us not to do what seems so right for us to do. And so just as the Danites sought counsel in accordance with their own evil desires, don't you find sometimes we have a tendency to avoid seeking godly counsel and instead look for people who will tell us what we want to hear. The Bible says faithful, however, are the wounds of a friend. Godly counsel is from someone who loves God, his word, and you so much that that person is willing to tell you, you are wrong. Don't do this. You are on a path discrepant with the word of God. It feels good. It looks good. It isn't good. And I have right here the objective standard of the word of God to remove all doubt about this. I beseech you, turn from this way and yield to Almighty God. Have you ever met someone, maybe you're that person from time to time, who's avoided seeking godly counsel for the same reason this poor school teacher uh, refused to consult the Better Business Bureau in a timely way? Well, he may tell me something I don't want to hear. Could I tell you something? The God of the Bible is so interested in us living large and well that uh, his prescription for life in the Bible is not meant to restrict us unduly nor to reign on our parade. Can I just simplify things by saying Father knows best. He's not subject to appearances and feelings and moods. He sees the end from the beginning. He's possession, in possession of all data. He doesn't have a fragmentary awareness of anything. Sometimes he says in the Bible, this is right, this is wrong. Father knows best. His Bible says through presumption comes nothing but strive. But with those who receive counsel is victory. One of the oft-neglected sources of divine guidance is ask for guidance. From who? A renegade priest? No. Ask guidance from someone you have reason to believe is living a Christ-centered life who's showing respect for the words of Christ. And who loves you enough to be willing to, if need be, even wound you with the truth to keep you from going down a path which will make you more susceptible to adversaries than ever before and will set you on a course on the run from God that might even turn you into the worship of idols instead of the one true God. I'm that poor school teacher and so are you. Please tell me what I want to hear. I've already made up my mind. I just want to use you as a reference. No. No. The Bible says, in abundance of counselors, there is victory.
You don't have to answer out loud, maybe just to yourself for your own good, just as I do. I wonder how much of your life struggles and mine have been brought upon us by our own poor decision-making. And could I tell you something? Some poor decisions have irreversible consequences. Isn't it wider, therefore, wiser, therefore, to search out and submit to the Word of God? Isn't he good? He delivered Israel mercifully from bondage. Shouldn't they have expected him to be trustworthy? Oh, Israel, no. Oh, Christian church, for we're the same. He has saved us as well by mercy and grace. We cried out to him and he heard our cry. And we lived a life of enslavement to a very cruel taskmaster. It wasn't Pharaoh, it was our own sin. Its presence, its power, and the penalty thereof. And he delivered it us. He saved us. He neutralized the power of sin by adding his very spirit into the mix. He removed the penalty of sin by casting it behind our back and by suffering and dying in our place. And he promises that one day he will even extricate from our lives the very presence of sin so there won't any longer be a flesh versus spirit daily conflict. We'll be free of sin. That kind of Savior has a right to say, do it my way. He has a right to say, marry one person of a separate uh, and different gender forever. <laughs> he has a right to say, it's not subject to review in spite of legislators and legislation. He has a right to tell us how to use our money. He has a right to tell us how to handle this physical vessel with purity. He has a right to tell us what to put in our body and what not to. He has a right to tell us what movies to go to and what not to. He has a right to tell us how to dress, especially when we come into a worship environment like this. He has a right to tell us how to raise our children, how to relate to one another. He has a right to tell us things like forgive those who hurt you, be kind to one another, tender. He has a right. He has a right. Why? Look what he's done for us. And if he did not withhold, he who was most precious, his only begotten son, but delivered him up for us all, won't he with him freely give us all good things. And if the Lord Jesus said, stay where you are, this is the lot in life I have ordained for you at this time, we dare not say, it's too challenging and oppressive for me. I'm moving out of it with or without your approval. Don't do it. Don't do it lest you go the way of the Danites and history repeat itself. Lord Jesus, it is our, it really is our desire to do things your way, but there is this fleshly inclination which rears its ugly head still at times, which persuades us to do our own thing. You don't force us into doing things your way. You want us to be constrained 
not by your imposition of power, but by your exposed Father heart for us, who loves us more than you. Father, you know best, and your intentions toward us are kind. What's on our plate? Oh, God, if it's from you, we will sup from it. It's our desire, and not substitute a different menu, if there's reason to believe it's contrary to your word. Lord Jesus, there is a way which seems to us, our eyes tell us so, our minds and all the rest, and we are so subject to self-deception, we could be just as vulnerable as the ancient Danites. And that's why you recorded their horrible history for us. You don't want us to go that way. Lord Jesus, would you put it within us to search the scriptures before any surely major decision in life and to seek out an abundance of godly counsel submitting to your will is over against our own it's your desire for us to live well it's called the abundant life lord jesus help us to do things in submission to you not like the danites this we pray in jesus name amen